Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. All right, Solar Warriors. Today, we're going to dive into a topic that I know many of you are interested in and I don't cover as often as I probably should or would like to. We are going to talk a bit more about how battery storage is changing the landscape for the solar market and probably beyond. And we're going to do that with a friend of mine, Paul Daly from Outback Power. And Paul recently wrote an article, by the time this is published, it won't have been recent anymore, but recently wrote an article in Green Tech Media called 10 Predictions for the Solar and Storage Market in the 2020s. We're going to dive into that. But first, let me bring Paul into the show. Paul, welcome to Suncast. Thanks, Nico. I uh, really appreciate you having me on, and uh, hopefully we can give some good, valuable content to uh, to the tribe here. I'm certain we will. For those who are unfamiliar, Paul is a 20-plus year veteran in the solar industry, developing marketing and deploying distributed generation tech for things like micro CHP, solar, storage. He's spent time at companies uh, that you would recognize, like AEE and Sunrun. Now he is the Director of Product and Market Strategy for Outback Power. Tell me, you guys were bought by a bigger company in the last uh, 18, 24 months. Tell me about that company and how that helped uh, Outback. Yeah, that's right. So Outback was originally acquired by a company called Alpha back in 2010. And then more recently, late 2018, Alpha as a whole was acquired by a much larger company uh, called Intersys. Uh, So Intersys is actually one of the world's largest battery companies. So instead of being an inverter company that sells batteries, we are now a battery company that sells inverters. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I think that's a, that's good context for those who don't uh, necessarily know much about Intersys or even perhaps for folks who are listening don't know much about Outback. To dig a little further as well, Paul has interacted with countless solar installation and professionals in his career across the spectrum. And uh, he usually finds himself in the role of translating their inputs into new products for the companies he works for, like the ones I just mentioned. And certainly for Outback, that's the role of the product and strategy director. So today, I wanted to take some time with you. I thought it was really interesting, the article that you did in Green Tech Media back into February before the world shut down, that highlighted your take on where storage is going, I'll say for the foreseeable future. You know, the article says that the batteries will be standard on systems by 2025, and it gives 10 predictions. So we're going to go through those. And the purpose is to help the listener understand a bit more of the nuance. It's hard in an article to grab the nuance. um, And there are a few things that I wanted to just sort of unpack in there. So, you know, I think we'll, we won't cover all of the topics and I'd encourage those who want to check the rest of the article out. I'll link to it in the show notes as I usually do. But one of the big takeaways that should surprise no one, Paul, is that there's going to be lots of storage. How do you see, and you've been in batteries and storage for a long time. How do you see this uh, really unfolding? I mean, it's a drum I've been beating for a very long time, as, as those that uh, know me or have attended any of, of my workshops in the past. You see the, the, the penetration of, of PV gets to a certain point, and you know, it, it does incur some, some challenges for grid operators, right? You have you know, power that's either coming in or you have to just like, ignore it. 
And the more PV you have, the less valuable it becomes because it's not dispatchable. Well, what energy storage does is it makes solar power dispatchable. So if we take that by itself, and we even, even if we set aside wind and all the other really great things that storage can do, that all in and of itself makes it necessary that new PV systems that come online you know, in the next 10 to 20 to 30 years increasingly involve uh, batteries. You know, it's a reality that we've all, those of us who've been in the industry for a decade or more, uh, see happening. And, and as you point out, the cost curve for storage is something we've all been sort of standing around waiting for, right? Like you and you know, I've been in the industry for more than, uh, for nearly, for, for me, nearly two decades, you more than two decades. And I remember when this same process happened for, for solar panels, right? We just kind of started seeing that precipitous fall around 2009, 2010 of, of uh, solar panel pricing. And that essentially matched with the adoption rate in the marketplace uh, because it allowed us to proliferate more installations and finance the systems more easily because the ASP dropped. That said, one of the things that I don't hear people talking much about, which is point number two in your article, is that as we add storage, we're obviously adding costs. So we're going to see system costs increase over, I would say, probably significantly as we shift toward batteries. And one of the things that that why that's, um, I don't see that as a common dialogue right now is because those two costs are decoupled, right? Somebody might buy a system and then add storage later, or there are potentially two different vendors that are selling those products. So how do you see this evolving over the coming five, 10 years? And uh, and what do you see that system cost increase? Uh, how is that going to impact the industry? It's interesting. The first place where we really noticed this was in Hawaii, right? So back in 2015, Hawaii said, you know, you can't export to the grid anymore which is an almost de facto requirement to have a battery. Yeah. And while the market for batteries grew tremendously, if you looked at the number of systems installed in absolute terms, it shrank. Not dramatically, but almost dramatically, because it was now a higher threshold for your financial payback, for your upfront costs or your financing, whatever it was going to be. Now, I think as the industry has, has come in, I know during my time with, with Sunrun, we spent a lot of time on that. And, um, and I was one of the, the main cheerleaders there for, hey, let's, let's go sell batteries in Hawaii. And uh, eventually, you know, we got the green light to go do that. And what we found is, yeah, you're coming in with a higher cost system, but now you can offer much more value, right? So it doesn't have to be a situation like Hawaii where you have a choice, mm-hmm. right? It's this or nothing. As we're finding in California, offering a battery in the system provides this resilience value. You know, assuming you set your system up correctly, yeah, uh, it can give you the backup power, and you know you can choose from varying levels of of how much backup power you want. But it now does more, right? And what we found all along is that the ability for the resilience shifts the conversation out of a you know purely financial analysis into more of more like a normal consumer product, right? I'm buying this because I want what it gives me. One of the things that occurs to me is that states like California in particular, and we're seeing this in the Northeast as well, have different incentive models to encourage storage adoption. So on the one hand, you've got state level uh, and probably soon even government level incentives for storage adoption by consumers that can offset this increased cost. On the other hand, you've got companies like Sunrun that implicitly in their in their sales model offset the cost of storage because they're using it for different ancillary services right so they incentivize their users to give them access to the to the storage capacity to be able to resell that and in, into capacity markets the same way that sunrun and now many others are attempting to do 
uh, in regional ISOs. So I think it's really important. And you point out in the article, we, we want to be sure that in our financial models, well, really in our education to consumers, that we're appropriately highlighting that while we will see overall system costs go up, the actual net cost of the consumer may in fact stay flat or go down. Is that accurate? Yeah, and I think you know the the pitch is a little bit different. So you know when I go out and do presentations for solar installers and and, and salespeople, you know what I tell them is, look, you don't go in there with with a battery system and sell it the way that you would sell a a, P, a pure PV system, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to get people fixated on oh here's the financial paybacks and doesn't get it because for batteries because of the added cost that's just inherent in having more equipment in there, it's not going to be as attractive. Yeah, and it doesn't tell the whole story. Right. So the way that I the way that I pitch it to to consumers is I say, look, this is a backup system that pays for itself, which, you know, gets that emotional. I want a backup system and then gives you an excuse. It pays for itself so that you go ahead and pull the trigger on the investment in that type of approach. And again, it doesn't have to be exactly that. But that type of approach, I think, is more effective when you're selling something like this that has a broader set of, of values that it provides the customer than just a lower electric bill. Hey, for my commercial solar warriors out there, do you sometimes feel like prospects are treating you like a dollar per watt commodity? Instead of a race to the bottom, why not add more value to your proposals by including DemandX load flexibility software from Extensible Energy? You can use intelligent AI software to monitor solar production and shift usage patterns of HVAC and other flexible loads. The result is increased savings on energy charges, demand charges, time of use charges, and that makes you and your proposal stand out from the crowd. Who doesn't want that? You can learn all about DemandX and how you can include load flexibility software as part of your proposals at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. And as a bonus, you'll get free load flexibility analysis, sales training, and info on how you can even white label DemandX for your solar company. So go ahead. Stand out with DemandX from Extensible Energy. In particular in California, and as they say, as California goes, so goes the nation and the world, Title 21 makes uh, solar PV standard issue the same way that we have other residential and, and for sure accoutrements like heat pumps and air conditioners. So with California adopting storage almost uh, inevitably as a standard issue, standard requirement. How will we see this impact the overall sort of the concept of how we sell storage to homeowners? It's, it's very similar to this, uh, this argument of uh, the benefits versus the, uh, that, the value, right? Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, to that point, you know, we're already working on the next revision of Title 24 to have it include you know, storage readiness requirements, right? Uh, so working with, with others in the industry, you know, we've come up with some language that, that basically bakes in, not batteries per se, but at least the ability to easily install them later. The next step is, is basically going to be eventually, as the cost comes down on batteries, they get baked in as well, much like PV just did, yeah. uh, because this is where PV started. Uh, so yeah, eventually you have a situation where now a home builder, he's, he's got these requirements and, you know, home builders have relatively efficient ways of, of, of getting all of their stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And there's really no reason that a, a solar and storage system wouldn't be packaged and presented in that way. Yeah. You know, so the same, you know, he's, he's going down the list and he's like, okay, I've got, uh, you know, XYZ heat pump, and I've got these countertops and I've got this toilet and this, 
refrigerator and this whatever. Oh, and I've got, you know, this energy storage system and this PV system. Yeah. Or maybe they're the same. I think that's the only question mark to me is, are the PV and the energy storage going to be coupled or are they going to be plug and play? And uh, I think mm-hmm. that just depends on on how the, the technologies evolve and, and how the players you know package them. All of this stuff, in my view, uh, you would certainly know more about this. And so I, and so I want to hear your thoughts on it requires different safety standards and code requirements than what we are currently looking at for integrating this, these types of systems. So can you bring us up to speed? You're involved in a number of code and standards boards. Where are we now and where do you see us going from the safety standards perspective? We had last October an FPA working with the Energy Storage Association put together a safety standard for, for batteries writ large, right? Just the, the standard for battery safety called an FPA 855. So that became official in October. It calls out some other similar standards. You have UL 9540, which is relatively new, but it's been around for a few years now. We just got the second edition out this year. So what 9540 does, it's a battery system safety standard. So this would be if you if you have a you know an energy storage system in your home, you know, California requires that it be listed to uh, UL 9540, mm-hmm. which is a requirement that comes out of 855. And so what we're we're seeing right now is all the building codes and electrical codes are all getting updated. So the NFPA updated the the National Electric Code in the 2020 cycle to harmonize with 855. We're seeing that activity go on right now with the International Code Council on the standard building codes that most states adopt. Mm. Uh, so California has adopted some of that language early. You know, once the language was finished, it said, "Okay, you know, here's how these things work." And you know, it's it's stuff like, "Hey, you you have to install it three feet or more from an entry point, or it's got to have you know this kind of fire protection." You know, those types of, of just typical building safety standards, you know, like water heaters and, and gas dryers and things like that. The codes are increasingly treating these things as more or less standard appliances. Yeah. And the good news there is now the inspectors are going to be able to know, hey, this is how I inspect for this. This is what I look for. If it has these markings, I know it's okay. If it doesn't have these markings, I know I need to dig deeper and find out what's going on. And as they get more comfortable with it, you know, it's a self-fulfilling cycle. Yeah. Well, apart from the inspectors and the ease of installation, the ease of integration into a more robust construction system, a lot of folks look at codes and standards as limitations, right? Like when rapid shutdown, as an example, which we, again, don't have time to really go deep down into, when that came out, I mean, it there was a lot of fear in the industry uh, that it was just going to add cost unnecessarily. What's, what's the upshot then for the NFPA 855 and, and these other storage standards uh, for the user, for the installer? This is really the only way to come back from you know, the stories you hear about fires, right? I, I live in, in, in Phoenix now. I'm probably 15 miles from where they had the, the battery fire and surprise. When you have an event like that, it puts a lot of fear into the... Uh, you know, the, the buying part of the industry, whether it's homeowners saying, hey, these things are dangerous or utility people saying, hey, these things are dangerous. Having these standardized safety codes is, is basically, you know, the industry, you know, submitting to, you know, safety organizations like the NFPA and saying, okay, here's how we make it safe. You know, here's how we know that this is as safe as it can be. You know, anytime you have a high energy density, you know, product like a big lithium ion battery, there is going to be some risk. And this is how we're going to manage that risk and ensure that it doesn't hurt people. 
and to a, a slightly lesser extent that it doesn't damage property. So once you have those and we can list to them, it levels the playing field for everyone. Yeah. yeah. So now I say, look, like we, we go and we list to this. Yeah, it's a pain in the neck. Yeah, it costs a lot of money, but it gives everyone assurances that someone's looked at this thing. Someone has made sure this is safe. Yeah. And I think that's really important to build consumer confidence. And as far as the inspections go, as anyone who, who's done it will, will attest, having something inspected that doesn't have that kind of standard to, to guide the inspection is really inconsistent. Yeah. Right. So you're, you're going to have inspectors go and I don't know what this is. And they're going to ask a bunch of questions and you're going to spend three or four weeks on something that should take an afternoon. And these codes really help to, to rein that in and make it a more, much more standardized, consistent process. And, that, and that's why they're important. And, and it's just, you know, as manufacturers and to a lesser extent as installers, you know, we need to be involved in, in creating these standards and at least understanding what they mean. You know, one of the things that concerns me as a homeowner, and even I think, you know, facilities managers at the CNI level, is there's an increasing need for separating the wheat from the chaff from a data perspective. You point out in your article that it's so common because we're in a, a, a nascent period where this technology just isn't widely proliferated. Every manufacturer has their own interface, right? And there's this vision from the homeowner's perspective of having a wall of screens that they have to sort of check, uh, include, you know, your AC, your storage, your solar. Are we heading in a direction where we're actually going to see anything that looks like real uh, automation and integrating these systems into the home automation process such that we can have transactive energy? And we've got Span.io and, and Lumen and others that are automating the process at the control board level, right at the energy, at the actual electrical panel. How does that world look in the next five to 10 years related optimi optimization of these software? Yeah, I think, you know, and, and you've had, I, I think you've had like Tom Tancy and some of the Sunspec guys on the show before. That's the kind of effort that it takes to make all this stuff play nice together. So I know that, that since I've joined the company, we've, we've really pushed to get away from our, our legacy proprietary, you know, comms and control platform onto, you know, Sunspec standardized Modbus, Ethernet, TCP IP, the, the, the kind of stuff that almost anyone involved in IT would know. Uh, let alone anyone doing devices or things like that that are common in the power generation business. You know, so the, the ones you'll hear there, you know, IEEE 2030.5, which is part of the new grid interconnection standard, you know, that's going to be really key for utilities to say, hey, here's what I want the system to do. And what we need to do is make sure all the devices behind that talk to each other, maybe using the same standard, maybe using a subset of it, so that when the signal comes, rather than make a bunch of noise, it says, Oh, okay. You know, the utility just said if if I eliminate demand, go from my my current load on the grid from two kilowatts to one kilowatt, that they'll pay me, you know, a dollar and a half. That makes sense. I'll do it, right? Or hey, if I generate you know three kilowatts and export it, they'll pay me X, and then it just does it. And at the end of the day, instead of seeing a screen full of charts and graphs and all this other garbage that most people don't even want to look at, it says you saved a dollar fifty five today. And it just gives it to you in, that, in a very meaningful uh, one or two numbers. We've got millions, uh, as we wrap this up, we've got millions of systems in California alone now installed and, and increasingly getting towards that number in other states, which begs the question of sort of compatibility. We could go down a deep rabbit hole on what AC and DC coupling mean, but I'd love to your thoughts as a company that often gets brought in to help installers and homeowners address the question of AC coupling and DC coupling for mostly retrofit, right? Like there's a huge market, obviously, for ESS, energy storage systems. 
in new construction, as we talked about. But what do we do with all of these uh, systems that, you know, the millions of systems installed in California that don't have storage right now and who logically are going to want to couple those with their existing PV system or or just with their home? Uh, is AC and DC coupling, where do we see that uh, argument fleshing out? So AC coupling, you know, for those that aren't familiar with it, is basically where you have an existing grid tie inverter or maybe an end phase, you know, microinverter system or something along those lines. And you don't want to mess with it, mm-hmm. right? Because as soon as you, you mess with that array, now you may have to repermit a bunch of stuff. You may have to get bring it up with, say you installed it in 2014 before a rapid shutdown was required. And now, you know, you're going to have to go and upgrade all that stuff, which in most cases you'd like to avoid. Yeah. With AC coupling, you can avoid that because you, you're basically just installing the energy storage system and using the AC output from that grid tie inverter to charge the battery. And that's the only interface that, that you need to worry about. So it, it treats the, the grid tie inverter much like it would a generator and it says, okay, I'm going to charge the battery with this. Great. What you need to be able to do is just modulate that. So during an outage, you still can provide backup and you can still recharge the battery using that grid tie inverter, but you have to be able to prevent that grid tie inverter from overproducing. And so we accomplish that now with, you know, frequency shifting that basically spoofs the new grid requirements. Mm-hmm. And so we can we can not just shut that off, but now we can modulate the output of that inverter very carefully, which makes it much, much better for the batteries and, and makes your system last a lot longer. So that's a much easier way to do things now. And you know, we've seen even people that that want to have, you know, module level power electronics, you know, opt for AC coupling even for a new system because it enables them to do it in the way that they want to do it. We're happy to, to serve in, in either scenario. You accurately point out in the article that it looks like, and this is one of my big takeaways, that there will be a temporary boom, at least, of AC coupling uh, until at least the PV-only retrofit market is saturated because DC coupling is arguably a better solution from a cost and efficiency perspective. It'll be interesting to see how this, is, this uh, fleshes out. I really enjoyed this article, Paul. And for those of you who maybe didn't read the article, want to take a look at it, of course, we are going to link to that article in uh, the show notes, which you can find at mysuncast.com by checking out this episode with Paul. There are a number of other very interesting predictions that Paul alludes to in his article that we didn't have time to cover today, like vehicle to grid, battery pack voltage. encourage you to go check that out. And uh, in the meantime, you can also check out Paul's uh, LinkedIn profile and uh, get to know Paul over on LinkedIn as well. Paul, super grateful for your time today. This is really insightful and, and helpful for me to get uh, the story behind the story. And uh, thanks for writing that article. It was really, uh, I found it really interesting and intriguing. Thanks, Nico. I, uh, I appreciate the feedback and uh, I'm happy to help. Absolutely. We'll have you back on here in a few weeks, I think, to do a longer form episode. So for those of you who are uh, maybe checking in for the first time because you followed Paul's social media and he sent you to check out this episode, I'd encourage you to subscribe to Suncast and uh, you'll see when his longer interview comes out in a few weeks. Till then, Paul, it's been great chatting with you and we'll talk very soon. Great. Thanks so much. That's a wrap on this conversation, Warrior, but I do hope that we'll see you back here on Thursday for this week's long-form interview. I also encourage you to check out other episodes of Suncast and let me know what you think of these shorter-form discussions. Do you want more like this? We've got hundreds of episodes, resources, and highlights from these discussions, along with the social media links for each episode guest, book recommendations, and so much more over at mysuncast.com. And that's also where you'll find other ways to engage with our Suncast tribe. 
like subscribing to our weekly tribe exclusive emails or even joining our exclusive inner circle of infinite learners and clean economy champions we affectionately refer to as the guild if you're on spotify or itunes i do so appreciate your rating and review so that others can also find suncast more easily and a special thank you to our sponsors who help make this podcast possible you can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor, as well as learn more about becoming a sponsor if that's something that you're interested in. You can follow the links there as well to any of the offers that we've discussed about any of our sponsors here today. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>